The following recording is a presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome you to visit our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to our service of Berean Baptist Church. Now, I'd like you to take your Bibles and open them to Hebrews chapter 9. I am pleased to be in the pulpit today, and I'm just counting down the hours to my final appearance, at least until Easter. And uh, next week, I will suspend our study in the tabernacle, and I'm going to preach to you uh, maybe what you might call a one-hit wonder sermon, and uh, it is related to the to the present topic, but it's not uh, tied into the series. Today, I'm happy to open the scriptures again to my favorite study of the Bible. Uh, if you had a copy of the Constitution and the by- and bylaws of the Berean Baptist Church in front of you today you would see in Article 3, Section 1A.1A, A, this uh, sentence regarding the pastor. It says, He shall not only have general supervision of the church, but shall have unrestricted liberty in presenting any matter he deems necessary to the church for its consideration and instruction. Now, the final part of that sentence says in effect that I have the liberty to bring any matter before you that I think is good for the best functioning of the church. The last part of the sentence means that I can preach any subject that I believe is good for your learning and your spiritual instruction. And so this gives me the latitude to choose anything to preach that doesn't violate our church statement of faith. And I would like to add one other part of interpretation to the sentence. I, I may preach what I like to preach. Many times I preach what I don't like to preach. And that's simply because that there are subjects that are unpleasant, but they still need to be taught because they are a part of the scriptures and the Lord commands us to do it. At other times, I preach to my greatest pleasure, which is what I do, when I preach on this subject about the tabernacle. So I'm thrilled that I can study this subject, and I'm even more thrilled when I have the opportunity to share with you the fruits of my labors that I put into the sermons during the week. Now, most of you have been with me for a a long, long time, and you know that I function best in the teaching mode, and uh, uh, it's when I'm explaining the Bible on more than just a surface level. And because you've been with me for so long, you've come to expect it, and uh, you come prepared for it, and you are, most of you, very well versed in our doctrine. And hopefully, by God's grace, you are insulated from the weaker side of Christianity, which is what I would call that, that just lets you stay all the time in simple gospel messages. Not that the gospel doesn't need to be preached, it certainly does, but we also need instruction in the doctrines uh, of God's Word. So I'm telling you this because you might not recognize, if you were just a regular attender of Berean Baptist Church, that when I'm preaching on the tabernacle, we're going beyond what most people hear in their, in their churches. 
And this is not to applaud me and my abilities. This is not for me to take a selfie of patting myself on the back for what I'm teaching. I'm only doing what the Lord told us to do. And according to Luke chapter 17 verse 10 that we read just a moment ago. And there the Lord said, So likewise ye, when ye shall have done those things, all those things which are commanded you, say, We are unprofitable servants. We have done that which was our duty to do. So there isn't any special commendation needed for preaching in the way that we should preach. This is my duty to do. And whether you like to hear what I preach is a totally different matter, but I like to preach from the Word of God, and this is the way that I believe that God would have me to preach. I'm preaching now from the Old Testament about the covenant that God made with Israel. And this is God's determination to save His people. As we spoke last week and the week before, Old Testament salvation is the same as New Testament salvation. And in both Testaments, and both time periods, salvation comes through the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. Now, when we study tabernacle worship, we study the redemptive work of Christ in the form of symbols. These aren't the real things that save. They are symbols of salvation that are accomplished by the Lord. Now, I had a related question asked last week about Old Testament sacrifices, and I want to make it clear that the sacrifices of animals were accepted by God only as a type of the sacrifice of Christ. Uh, It's Christ who saves. It's never the symbols that save. None of the symbols that were used in the Old Testament had any saving power. Now, I refresh your memory by reading again from Hebrews chapter 10, which says, For it is impossible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, that is, when Jesus came into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body thou hast prepared me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hadst no pleasure." Well, these verses tell us that God never intended for animal sacrifices to save anyone. It says that he takes no pleasure in them, at least in that regard, that they have no saving power. And what he intended to do, and did do, was to give his son a body. He gave Jesus Christ a body to be the perfect sacrifice that could satisfy all these Old Testament symbols and his sacrifice would take away sins forever. Well, I ask you to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9, and the part of the chapter that I want to read further clarifies what I've told you, and this, of of course, is in the New Testament, and we're going to start with Hebrews, but the text for the sermon is the Old Testament book of Exodus chapter 25. Exodus 25 describes the mercy seat that Moses was commanded to make as a covering lid on top of the Ark of the Covenant. Now, we've read that text several times in the previous messages, so I hope that you are familiar with it. And instead of starting there, in the Old Testament, we're going to read from Hebrews chapter 9. Today's message is the last one on the mercy seat. It's the last message on the covenant as it respects the Ark of the Covenant. I I intend to conclude the series 
on the tabernacle with messages about the pillar of cloud that stood over the tabernacle during the day and then became a column of fire at night. And that's what led Israel for 40 years through their wilderness wanderings. But unfortunately, that comes in two sermons and because I've only got one more week and then we would separate those times by a long period of time, I'm not going to deal with that until I get back from the surgery. This, the mercy seat though was a, was a beautiful piece of workmanship. It had two golden cherubim on each end with their wings outstretched and touching at the tips as they faced each other. And they stood looking down on this lid, the mercy seat, where the priest would sprinkle the sacrificial blood of atonement. Now, in, in our picture, you can see that the priest here is preparing to sprinkle the blood. This sprinkling is recalled in the ninth chapter of Hebrews. Now, I hope that you found Hebrews chapter 9. And in Hebrews, there are vivid explanations of the worship rituals from the Old Testament and what they were for. After we read these verses... If you would just please put a marker in your Bible, because at the very end of the sermon, we're going to come back to this chapter again. So in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 6 through 8, Now, when these things were thus ordained, the priests went always into the first tabernacle. Now, the things that are ordained is the author's reference to the first part of the chapter and to the various articles in the tabernacle and their service, but but most particular, the work of the high priest at the mercy seat. When he says the first tabernacle, he's referring to the first compartment of the tent of the tabernacle that is known as the holy place. Now, when these things were thus ordained, the priests went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. But into the second went the high priest alone. Now, the ordinary and the common priest had daily duties that they did in the first part of the tabernacle. The second part of the tabernacle was called the most holy place, And only the high priest was permitted to go into that area. But into the second went the high priest alone once every year. Not without blood which he offered for himself and for the heirs of the people. The Holy Ghost is signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while as the first tabernacle was yet standing. Now first, the priest would go in to the second compartment and he would make an offering for himself. Then he would leave and come back again and make an offering for the sins of the nation. And this offering was a symbol of a greater sacrifice than could be made with the blood of animals. And that sacrifice was the once for all sacrifice when our Lord offered himself on Calvary. His offering was for the sins of his people. And it superseded all of these Old Testament sacrifices. Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of all these offerings that were made in the preceding 1,500 years. He was the true substance of them, and his blood accomplished what none of those sacrifices could do. And his offering was great enough that he only needed to offer himself once. And then he sat down permanently on the right hand of God. 
Now next week, we're going to look at the arrival of Christ as he is announced by John the Baptist, and we'll return to the picture of sacrifices as Jesus is pictured as the Lamb of God. Now the wonderful effect of the atonement is that the blood of Christ was sufficient to fully satisfy God for all sin. It accomplished everything that it was intended to do. It redeems all that it was intended to save. Now, without rehearsing all the previous information I've given you in other sermons, I want to take you into the third part of our outline And I would really like to talk more about those beautiful golden cherubim that were on the mercy seat. Now, as we learned last week and talked about them, they are truly fascinating. But I said then that we don't want to get lost in the cherubim because they were made in respect to the work of Christ. So in the previous messages, we observed the approach of worship and the attitude of worship. And moving on from these, we now arrive at part number three, which is the accord of worship. And I use this term accord in the sense of a diplomatic accord. When diplomats negotiate a peace accord, it means that two parties reach an agreement so that they can coexist without hostility. Now, the mediator of the peace accord or the peace agreement that we're speaking of is Jesus Christ, who made peace through the offering of his blood. Through his blood, he brought together two estranged parties. That is, two parties that were not at peace. And these two parties are God and man. We have been estranged from God since Adam's fall in the Garden of Eden. And I don't mean to imply that God and man are equally aggravated And that each must compromise and concede what they don't want to give up and so make peace. And neither do I mean that God and man sit at a table and negotiate. When we are reconciled to God, it requires complete abandonment of our will and our ways to the full and complete capitulation of God's holiness, his righteousness, and his uncompromising justice. Never think that the way that we meet with God is by compromise. The way that we can reach agreement with God is by God giving up something himself rather than that we would give up everything. When we come to the place that we understand Christ, or before I should say, before we come to that place that we understand Christ, God does not care what you and I want. He doesn't care what we think. In fact, if our thinking is not changed to perfectly match His, we'll never be reconciled to Him. We must surrender everything we are to His Lordship, every thought, Every motive, everything that we are must be given up. God doesn't save anyone who refuses in that moment to confess and abandon all sin and bow in humility and surrender in unworthiness to the God who created us and to the God who has been offended. So to be reconciled to God, he must receive everything that he demands. We must fully surrender on every point. 
and agree that we are under his just condemnation and that we are the ones who broke the peace. We are the ones who are at fault. We broke his peace and God is not going to yield to crybabies who think they've been treated unfairly. If you think that God will take you as you are and leave you as you are, you have another thing coming. Jesus Christ is that mercy seat where man meets God. He doesn't offer to have a meeting with those who are his equals, but rather he is the bridge over the deep, wide gap that separates worms from glory. Now in Exodus 25, God said that he would meet with his people at the mercy seat. Jesus Christ is the real mercy seat that is pictured by that man-made mercy seat that was put on the Ark of the Covenant. He's the meeting place between us and God, and he is the only mediator between us and God. And when I say only, I mean it exactly as the Bible teaches. Now, the popes of Rome say that Mary is a mediator. Mary cannot bring us to God. Angels are not mediators. Angels, cherubim, can't represent us to God. Dead saints are not mediators. And if you wear their medals and pray to them, you in effect deny Jesus Christ. It is only the matchless blood of Christ sprinkled on that heavenly mercy seat that is the way of reconciliation. And so to say that there is another mediator is worse than a priest offering a sow and sprinkling its blood on the altar. It profanes God's holy altar. And we don't have any other word for that but blasphemy. Well, I'd like to speak to you today about the necessity of this accord by which we are reconciled to God. Now, remember that the Bible teaches that there is hostility between us and God, that we are enemies. And I emphasize this because Romans is very clear on this point. In Romans 8, verse number 7, it says that the carnal mind, that is the natural mind, is the enemy of God's ways and his will. The Bible is no less clear that it is also God's position towards man. That God is against us. God is against us because of sin. He is against us because we've transgressed his law and we have denied his right to govern us as our Lord and sovereign creator. God is not good-natured about our sin. He's unwilling to tolerate sin. Now, our world is filled now with all sorts of toleration of every kind of evil that you can imagine. God does not tolerate our sin. The Bible teaches that God's wrath is against us in the worst degree because of sin. God said that the wicked will be turned into hell and they'll face everlasting punishment. And that is never going to be offset or overcome by sentimentality and good feelings. The scriptures are also against any teaching that implies that God exists to make you happy. And that God is just unfulfilled and he is distressed unless you are all smiles from ear to ear. No, you exist to meet God's demands of holiness. You exist to glorify him by fully acceding to his every demand. His justice demands your complete 
obedience. God is happy whether you believe in him or whether you don't. Now let me explain that statement because that that seems at odds with what many people think. What you believe about God is not going to change him in the least. But what you believe about God has everything to do with how you will be changed and how God will treat you. In belief or unbelief, God's justice is still satisfied. I've heard many preachers deny that uh, hell glorifies God. And if I say something like that, then they'll disagree with it as if it makes no difference whether people go to hell. No, there is a definite difference. There's a definite difference. We're saying that there is no purpose in the world but God's purpose. That God never made anything or does anything that will not in some way contribute to his glory. So hell glorifies God through perfect justice. Now to you, it certainly makes a difference which way you glorify God. Is it better to glorify God by believing in Jesus Christ and to have him to be your justice? Or is it better to remain in unbelief and for you to try and satisfy the glory of God by his justice in hell? To me, that doesn't seem to be a very difficult decision at all. But whichever way that you choose, God is still glorified. But I can tell you that despite our wickedness and despite our estrangement from God's peace, God takes no pleasure in turning or throwing people into hell. His will of pleasure is that everything will be, everyone will be saved. Well, happily, there is a way for us to have a solution to this most terrible hostility problem. There is a way for God to be perfectly satisfied with us, and it comes through the mediation of Jesus Christ. He is the mercy seat by which we are reconciled to God. So now I'd like us to look at three areas of agreement in this accord. First is the allowance of mercy. Now perhaps what we should do is to start with the much earlier agreement, which is the agreement, the accord, within the Trinity of God. This is the agreement between the Father and the Son in the covenant of redemption. Now most of you have been members of Berean for many years. You're quite familiar with this agreement. We're not strangers to this eternal agreement between the Father and the Son, as many are. This agreement is known as the Pactum Salutis. It's the covenant of redemption that is elucidated in the prayer of Jesus Christ, who is our great high priest, that is recorded in John chapter 17. John 17 is the high priestly intercessory prayer of Christ for his people. Now, I'm not going to go to John 17 today. Hopefully, you'll read that later. You'll carefully think about it when you get home. Some wonder what God was doing before he created the world. I don't know if you remember this far back, but we did a series on hell. And I I gave you a quote from Augustine. And when I use Augustine's name, don't think for a minute that I accede to all of Augustine's doctrine, because I don't. But I mentioned, this, uh, I mentioned this quote from Augustine. He said that what God was doing before he created the world was creating hell for curious souls. 
Well, we know that God was doing something before he created the world. God was doing something impossible for our finite minds to understand. And he gives us some insight into his activity in John in Jesus' prayer, rather, in John chapter 17. That there was something going on before the world was created, and at least one of those somethings was creating a pact between the Father and the Son. A pactum salutis, a covenant of redemption, and that pactum salutis just means an agreement, a covenant of salvation. And this covenant of salvation is that Jesus Christ would come into this world to offer himself as a sacrifice for sin. Promises were made in this agreement. Charles Hodge, who was a notable theologian from the 19th century, summarized this agreement. He said there are eight promises that were made to the Son. Now, I'll tell you something about Charles Hodge. Uh, we don't want to criticize unfairly this, this what I'm about to tell you because Charles Hodge had no special insight into God's activities before he created the world. He knows no more than you and I can know about what God was doing before he created the world. But these statements that he makes are drawn from the scriptures. So he says this is, this is the agreement. Number one is that God would, would form a purified church for his son. Number two, that the son would receive the spirit without measure. Number three, that he, that is the Father, would be ever-present to support him. Fourthly, that he would deliver him from death and exalt him to his right hand. Fifthly, that he would have the Holy Spirit to send to whom he willed. Sixthly, that all the Father gave to him would come to him and none of them would be lost. That we read in John, don't we? John's Gospel. Number seven, that multitudes would partake of his redemption and his messianic kingdom. And then number eight, that he would see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. And that is a quotation from Isaiah 53. Now through his, his agreement then to step down from glory to become incarnate and die for our sins, Christ received these promises. And because you and I are in Christ... We are also his joint heirs, and we become beneficiaries of these promises. So what we find is that John 17 is critical information for understanding God's eternal plans and purposes. But alas, we have a great problem with these kinds of scriptures, and we have arguing about them. And we find that man's will in salvation dominates understanding so that people cannot see that there is not a single person saved unless God determines to save them. The fact that we come to a discussion about this agreement between God and man is only because God said there is a basis on which this agreement is made. And that basis is the eternal agreement that we had nothing to do with. It's an eternal covenant. So we never suppose that it is our decisions that are primary or that they are any basis of what God would do. Now what this does is to effectively rule out foreseen faith as the reason that God would choose anyone to be saved. God does not look down through time and see what people will do and on that basis save them. 
Now, this decision was made before there was any action of ours that was considered or could be considered. It was prior to creating man and allowing his fall. And so thus it happens before any of us are born. And that's plainly taught by Paul in Romans chapter 9 and in Ephesians 1. But moving on from this accord in the Godhead, the cord between us and God happens because God is merciful to fallen sinners. He has no obligation to save. He has no obligation to provide a redeemer. There is no obligation to save even one sinner. That one sinner should receive mercy. And if not one, then neither is obliged to save all. Or that all should receive mercy. Mercy is an eternal, internal rather, attribute of God. This means that it's part of its nature. Without it, he can't be God. Now, uh, let me clarify that. You and I do not decide what makes God, God. He is self-existent. He is self-limiting. He is his nature. It's not, in any sense, external to him. In other words, he established this about himself. And unless he is what he says he is, then he's not God. So we can't make the mistake that God is in any way obligated to man. He is not merciful because he incurred a debt to us. So never make the mistake of saying, well, I think that God is this. Or I think that God is that. God is who he says he is. And all that you can know about God is what you read in his word. And the only opinion that counts is his. So it's grossly inaccurate to say that God must be merciful to any person or to all people or he would be unfair. May I remind you of Romans 9.18? Therefore, hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and on whom he will he hardeneth. Everything that God does is for the pleasure of his glory regardless of the will or feelings of his creatures. God's ways are past our understanding. You and I know our own hearts. In all honesty, we must say that it's a mystery that God would have been merciful to us. And who can understand why he should be? And this is the reason that mercy is coupled with grace. A gracious God based his mercy in his divine character alone. It was not because of anything in us. There is no good reason for it in us. You see, if we understood God better, no one would complain that God elects someone to eternal life. No one has a basis to claim that he has, should receive the mercy and the grace of God. In fact, a claim against God is antithetical to the principles of mercy and grace. God will have mercy on whom he will have mercy, and he has mercy on those that he loved from before the foundation of the world. These are the ones in John 17 that he prayed for. These are the ones we read very clearly in John 17 that the Father gave him and that he agreed to die for. These are the ones who are the subjects of the pactum salutis. So looking at this from the true biblical perspective that is shown in the types and the figures and the plainly revealed statements of the word, God is merciful because he allowed a substitute 
on which there is a basis for mercy. Mercy is never given at the expense of justice. Now, out of this flows important doctrines. Imputation, expiation, propitiation, and justification. Those doctrines aren't our focus today, but let me just briefly explain how they work. Now, most of you know this because you've been taught what others haven't been taught. I think back almost 20 years when I became the pastor, within a few months we were into the book of Jude, Uh, The third verse of Jude became a rallying cry for the exposition of doctrine. Jude said that we must earnestly contend for the faith once delivered to the saints. Then after the exposition of Jude, we, or maybe it was concurrently, we went through our church statement of faith. And this was to make sure that we understood what does the statement of faith mean? What does it say? What does it mean? Well, it delineates these and many more doctrines. Then we started in the tabernacle, and these were the doctrines that we started with, and they had never before been the focus in this church. So I'm happy these many years later that you are well acquainted with these doctrines. You understand them to be foundational to any discussion that we have of the scriptures. These are doctrines that are found cover to cover in the Bible, and to ignore them is to be ignorant of foundational salvation scriptural principles. And let me just add this, that if you don't recognize the names of the doctrines, which you very well may not, you have heard them. You've heard them taught over and over again in my preaching. You are aware of them, but you may not know that you're aware of them. So let me just briefly explain what they are, and you'll say, ah, aha, yes, I know what, I know what expiation is. I know what propitiation is. I know what imputation is, justification. So beginning with imputation, this is the transferring of Christ's righteousness to the believer. Jesus kept God's law perfectly, and he earned a transferable righteousness that is by keeping that law which consists of the merits of his perfect life. Imputation is an accounting term. It means to charge to the account of. So the righteousness of Christ, his righteousness, is charged to us when we place our faith in him. When God sees our ledger, he sees nothing but the perfection of Christ, and he accounts that perfection as our own. Now that's a wonderful transference, but by itself it's not enough. There needs to be another imputation There's another side of the ledger. And on that side of the ledger is our guilt. And our guilt must be removed. So as Christ's righteousness is transferred to us, our guilt is transferred to him, the one who is innocent. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says that Christ never sinned, but he became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That is what we call double imputation. Oh. Paul clearly taught imputation as do other New Testament authors, and we find it in the Old Testament as well. And when this double imputation happens, there is no reason for God to condemn us. Even though we still sin, even though we go through life and we still sin, none of us is perfect, yet God doesn't see that imperfection because all he sees is Christ's righteousness and our guilt taken away and Christ becoming our punishment for us. 
All of this must work together. And so, therefore, it is impossible that Christ would die for those who are not truly redeemed. The covenant of redemption has no provision provision that Christ should die for anyone that's not given to him by the Father. If they were given, they will be saved. The guilt of the sinner is taken away, and that's the meaning of the second word, expiation. It means that your guilt is taken away. It explains Christ's agony in the garden when he looked into that bitter cup. And in the bitter cup was the guilt of all of our sins. It was the blackness and the ugliness of our guilt that was taken by Christ that caused the Father to turn his face away from the Son. The one who knew no sin had guilt transferred to him, something that the Holy God had never experienced. He became sin for us. That means he became a sin offering for us. The next word is propitiation. It means satisfaction. It means placating, the appeasing of God's wrath. God allowed the blood of Christ and his infinite suffering to satisfy an infinite penalty. And interestingly, as we talked about, I think, last week, mercy seat is translated from the same word that is propitiation. So Aaron brought the blood of propitiation to the place where it satisfied the wrath of God. He sprinkled it on the mercy seat. And the law beneath the mercy seat has no power against us when it's covered by the blood of Christ. The fourth word is justification. It's a word that you're much more familiar with. It's a legal term. It is a forensic term. That means that it's evidentiary. It means to be declared judicially innocent. Faith in the blood of Christ causes us to be declared innocent and under no obligation to punishment. What it doesn't do, it doesn't change our moral condition because although justified, as I've just said, we still sin. Our moral condition is changed in our sanctification. So we see that God does not then give mercy at the expense of justice. All of this is working together. Justice will be satisfied. But God's mercy allows Christ to do this for us. He accepts as full satisfaction to his justice what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Now, secondly, following up on this, is the avoidance of punishment. The accord between us and God is that by faith in Christ, we escape the punishment that's due us. On the mercy seat, there was a lid. There was a lid that covered the law. That is, that's what the mercy seat is. The law, that is the tablets of the commandments that were given to Moses, were placed inside the Ark of the Covenant and covered by the mercy seat. Now, we could go back to that story of the Philistines when they captured the ark. They opened it, and they exposed the contents. Things were bad enough for them, but they had no idea the trouble they were in when they uncovered the law. They touched the ark, which the law forbids. They saw the ark, which the law forbids. They looked inside of it, which the law forbids. As Augustine said, God was creating hell for curious souls. So exposing the law exposes one to the obligation of punishment. When you come under the law, you are condemned. And this is what happened to everybody at birth. You were uncovered. 
That first breath that you took exposed your spiritual nakedness. And so as much as you were born physically naked, you were also born spiritually naked. You were born bound for punishment. You were a child of sinful parents and a child of wrath yourself. And so to avoid punishment, the law of God must be taken away. It must be hidden from you. In our pictures of the mercy seat, there can be seen, there can be seen a crown that's molded around the top. Bible expositors agree that this word crown comes from another word that means to bind together. In other words, the crown was like a seal that bound the lid to the Ark of the Covenant so the lid wouldn't shift when it was being transported. I think perhaps if you're well-versed in Scripture, you can see that that seal must be emblematic of the Holy Spirit who seals the believer in Jesus Christ until the day of redemption. The lid on Christ's mercy seat is shut forever so the people of God can never look inside. The people of God are never exposed to the condemnation of the law. We are sealed by God's Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. And this is why you will never lose your salvation if you believe in Jesus Christ. He keeps you perfectly until Christ returns or you die and go to be with him. See, as we talk about the mercy seat, there are multitudes of doctrines that flow out of this study. We might also ask, what was the Holy Spirit doing in the Old Testament? Well, he was doing this. He was in those believers, sealing them, as he does those of us who believe in Christ today. Well, I mentioned this final observation, and this ends our study of the mercy seat. Thirdly, is the acceptance of fellowship. Yes, we were estranged from God. No, we had no accord. There was no agreement. Now there is. God commanded the construction of the ark and the mercy seat. God said, this is where I will come to you. This is where I will commune with you. We will have fellowship above the mercy seat. Now that's interesting because fellowship with God was lost in Adam before that was unfettered fellowship. You remember the story how the God would just show up in the cool of the day and he would walk and he would talk with Adam. Nothing hindered their fellowship with each other. But that sweet fellowship was lost when Adam sinned. So what was it that restored that fellowship? What enabled Adam to have fellowship with God again? Well, God would have nothing to do with Adam until there was death. Not until there was a sacrifice made did God have fellowship with him. So God made a sacrifice. God killed animals. God clothed Adam and Eve from the skin of the animals, and that covered Adam's nakedness. And that was a symbol that one day God would make another sacrifice of his own son. Now, what happened to Adam is that he endured the physical consequences of sin, but the spiritual consequences of what he did was no longer chargeable to him. Physically, he died, but spiritually, he still lives. And so now, Adam is in the presence of God, where he awaits the resurrection of his body, as we will. Because of Christ's righteousness, he was restored to fellowship, and it's by that very same righteousness that so are we. That's the accord. That's the agreement with God. 
Adam recognized his sin. And then he recognized that God pardoned him. And that pardon, folks, was not because God saw what Adam would do. Adam did nothing on which God could base forgiveness. God pardoned him based upon what Christ would do. Fellowship happens, relationship happens, only because God determined to reconcile us to him. We would not and we could not do it. So the pactum salutis is that God would provide a redeemer. The eternal covenant is the promise that God would redeem and that his son, by doing it, in this agreement, would receive an inheritance. Some would be given to the son and they would be his eternally. Understand that God is always first. The inheritance of Christ cannot be dependent upon what we do. Can you imagine that God would make a promise to his son, I'm going to give you this, but you receiving this is dependent upon what those depraved sinners down there will do. Can you imagine that God would make such a promise? That's a promise that could never be fulfilled. Does Christ forgo his inheritance if unholy people choose not to believe in him? Certainly not. God always moves first. And it's always by his sovereign good pleasure. He sets the time and the place, the when and the where, that fellowship will be restored. We do not influence God's choice of us, nor the choice of any other, on whom he decides to bestow his grace. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning verse 5 says, Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. And because of this restoration... We read this beautiful passage in the Psalms. I'd like you to turn to the Psalms, Psalm 85. And we'll see just how much did believers in the Old Testament understand? Were they given any words about this, what we've just been discussing today? Well, Psalm 85 answers part of this for us. Beginning in the 7th verse of the 85th Psalm. Show us thy mercy, O Lord. And grant us thy salvation. I will hear what God the Lord will speak. For he will speak peace unto his people and to his saints. But let them not turn again to folly. Surely his salvation is nigh them that fear him. That glory may dwell in our land. Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Truth shall spring out of the earth, and righteousness shall look down from heaven. Yea, the Lord shall give that which is good, and our land shall yield her increase. Righteousness shall go before him, and shall set us in the way of his steps. Do you see who starts and finishes? Can you see what God is doing in in uniting mercy and grace and justice, all of that coming together. Mercy and truth, it says, are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Is that a blessed agreement? God, his pity upon humans combines with the truth of who Jesus is. These meet. Pilate said, what is truth? 
Jesus Christ is truth. And out of him comes redemption and the salvation of unworthy sinners. John Gill wrote, Peace with God is made by Christ, the peacemaker. And so the glory of divine justice is secured and peace with God for men obtained in a way consistent with it. And Christ's righteousness being imputed and applied to men and received by faith produces a conscience peace, an inward peace of mind, which passeth all understanding. And that's a fitting way to end our discussion. We are restored. We are in favor with God because of Jesus Christ. The throne of judgment has been turned into a throne of grace. God is on the throne And without satisfaction made by Jesus Christ, he has nothing to offer us but eternal condemnation. God must condemn us unless there is something that stands between us and his law. He must condemn because of the eternal justice of his law. And there is a blessed intervention. Jesus Christ is the mercy seat. Well, I said we were done. Don't get too anxious. Before I let you go, I do want to give you one more thought on those cherubim. One more thought about the cherubim on top of the mercy seat. Their wings were outstretched. There was one on the left. There was one on the right. And they faced each other. Two angels had the mercy seat between them. In John chapter 20, Mary Magdalene came to Jesus' tomb early on Sunday morning. She wept and she stooped to look into the tomb. John records in the 20th chapter, beginning in verse 11, But Mary stood without at the sepulcher weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the sepulcher, and seeth two angels in white, one sitting uh, in white, sitting one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. An angel at the head and an angel at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. Is that not marvelously reminiscent of the Old Testament mercy seat? Jesus is our mercy seat. Now I ask you to put something in a holder there in Luke, or rather Hebrews chapter 9. So I go back there, Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 11. But Christ being come in high priest of good things to come, By a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. There are too many dead saints. There is too much Mariolatry. There are too many angels. There are too many sacraments. There are too many good works, too many stubborn opinions that stand between people and God. And the only thing that should be between us and God is Jesus Christ. He's the God-man who grants favor with God. There's an old song, some of you probably know it. Nothing between my soul and the Savior. And that's what it will take for you to see God. Jesus is the mercy seat. He is the only place where you will see God. He's the way, the truth, and the life. He is our great high priest. He's our sacrifice. He is our redeemer. And he is the savior of our lives. Blessed be God for Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, we come to you now thanking you.
for this marvelous, wonderful, unexplainable sacrifice that was made by the life of Jesus Christ. Though we talk about it in so many different doctrines today, we are are just merely expressing as far as humans can understand. Even these, we have no, no ability to reach the depths of this wonderful salvation that you have given. We can study the terms. We can give those out. But what stands behind all of that and what happened in eternity past, what happened before this world was created, the the pactum salutis, the things that took place, we have no certainty to know except what small amounts of your marvelous grace, the immensity of it, that you give us through reading your word. Help us, Lord, to be students of your word. We understand salvation and how it comes through Jesus Christ, that it's by nothing that we do. We can't offer ourselves and the good deeds that we think that we have and say, God, save me for this. He saves us for nothing but what Jesus Christ did. And so, Lord, we humbly, we humbly bow before you, receiving that truth We ask, Lord, if there's anyone here today who doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, that they will come today, that your Spirit will draw them with the everlasting cords of love, and they will realize mercy and truth. Bless our people this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Roner Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us online at www.bebaptist.org.